You're listening to the Youth for Life podcast with Michelle Baum, director of Why for Life at Lutherans for Life, where we prepare youth to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Be sure to stick around after today's live recording of our Chats for Life program to find out how you can be live too on our next Youth for Life podcast. let you start us off with prayer and then I'll ask a quick question about manhood so give some time to get in the mood to talk right so all right sounds good let us pray gracious heavenly father we give you thanks for the distinction between men and women and the goodness that you bring to your creation in that distinction and in the reunion of man and woman together in the sacred bond of marriage and the way in which you provide for your creation through their union. We pray that you would enlighten us tonight by your word, that we may be edified and enriched in hearing the callings that you have for men, that we would praise masculinity as you give it and as you intend it, and that we would find in your son himself a man the Savior for all of our disorder and sin. It's in his name that we pray as he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Hemmer, and thank you for joining us tonight on Chats for Life as we talk about uh, masculinity and biblical manhood. What I want to do first is I'd like to give everyone a chance to kind of give us, maybe if you could give us two things, one or two things that you think society says, this is what a man is to be, or this is what a man looks like. So when you think of society's definition of manhood, how would you describe that? Just one or two words. What would it be? Can I, can I turn that on its head? And sure. can I ask you that? Yes. Um, so, let's, so we'll let's go. See this, uh, or oh, anyone here, really. Yeah, so that's, yes. Who would like to put something forward? Go ahead, Olivia. What is, yeah. Just really strong, kind of emotionless at times. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll go, I think think that society expects men to be consumers of things, consumers of food, consumers of, cars, consumers of women, that kind of thing. And it pushes that narrative that we should conquer things by consuming them. Are there other ideas? Macy or Nicole, do you have any ideas? I mean, just kind of, kind of what they said, like, I was, I like what Olivia said, like strong and emotionless. I feel like men feel like they have to hide. Strong, emotionless, hiding their feelings. Okay. Um, just something that I thought is that the liberal side of society is now saying that men and women need to be equal. So that's the other side of that. How about you, Nicole? I was just thinking, it's rather hard to put my idea into words, but I don't know. There's a lot of negative. I, I, and I don't even know how to describe it, but there's a lot of negative things going around and I don't know. The, especially little boys in my life are, are hurt by it, but I don't know what exactly it is they're hurt by. That okay. There's not enough value maybe placed on them. Hmm. 
I would say, and I'll just, I'll give a, a quick side note. You know, I think most of you know that I used to be a teacher and, and taught for more than 20 years. And over that time, I definitely saw a transition in, in young men and what, what they felt was expected of them. And I would say that when the last few years I was teaching my high school young men felt that they either needed to fall into one of two categories, either so, so male that they were aggressive about their maleness, Uh, not necessarily aggressive with women, but in your face masculinity, right? And they, they embraced that. And, And then there was the other side where we had young men not sure how trying to take on maybe more feminine characteristics Um, and that those that were in the middle, that there was a lot of searching, right? There was a lot of searching as to to what uh, masculinity looked like and a desire, a desire to take care of the females in the classroom, but a knowledge that that may not be received or was not accepted in society this desire to, to lead in a godly way and to, to be manly in service and in support, but concerned about how women would view that. And they asked a lot of questions like, Mrs. Bauman, should I, should I open a door for a lady? So anyway, I am so looking forward to tonight's presentation so we can maybe clarify some of those things, right? Good. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for the, uh, the good introduction. If you think about what what is man, I think there are probably three ways to to distinguish a man or what we mean when we say that someone is a man. On the one hand, we might mean that he's not a woman. On, On another hand, we might mean that he's not a boy. So boy and man, both male, of course, but somewhere there, a boy has to cross some kind of threshold pass through some kind of rite of passage in order to be considered a man. Or we might say that a fully grown, not boy, male human being, we might say, we might exhort him to to be a man. He is, of course, a man over against a woman, over against a boy. But there's, there's something missing there. So we might define man against being unmanly. So that begs the question then, not just what is man, but but what is masculinity? And that's a that's a loaded word in our culture to be sure. You've probably heard masculinity called toxic. But I would suggest and we'll we'll begin with my argument and then we'll look into the Word of God to see whether, whether my thesis about what masculinity is holds or not. But I would suggest that real masculinity can't be toxic, that anything toxic is, is really a distortion of what masculinity was created to be. So here's, here's my definition for masculinity. And that's this, that real masculinity is not found in any individual characteristic or trait that a man might possess, but in the intersection of those 
characteristics, male characteristics, with the exercise of manly virtue. We'll unpack that more in, in a minute. But so masculinity means harnessing the, the power that a man naturally possesses and using it for the good of others. So the essence of masculinity is not a kind of rugged independence. It is sacrificial giving. So if your internet connection drops off or you're listening to this on a podcast later um, and, and you take away nothing else from tonight's chat, that's, that's the takeaway. Masculinity, if you distill it down to its purest essence, masculinity is about sacrifice or about giving. So where does it come from? Do you guys have Bibles close by on hand? An app on your phone, perhaps? Could somebody open up to Ephesians 4 and read 11 to 14? I got it. Uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So one of the functions of the church is, is to grow all of her children, St. Paul says, up into mature manhood. And did you catch what, how St. Paul contrasts mature, or, or rather what he contrasts mature manhood with there in Ephesians 4? What's the alternative? It's, like, it's being like children. And, and he says... What's that? Tossed to, tossed to and fro, right? Yeah, yeah. By by every wind of doctrine, every deceitful scheme, tossed to and fro, that we would grow up. This is a function of the church to grow her children up into mature manhood. Now hold on to that thought and back up in the Bible just a little bit to Galatians chapter three. And someone read for us verses 25 to 27. I can do it. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Jesus Christ. And is it through 29? No, just through just through 27. Oh, all right. Sorry, I read yeah. one too many. That's <laughs> fine. As many it's of hard, you It's hard to stop baptized. in the middle, you know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So Paul says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And this made you what? Did you catch his argument there? Or the phrase that's pertinent to our discussion? Sons you are all what of God? Oh, sorry, Macy, I talked over you. No, it's fine. Um, sons of God. Sons of God. All the baptized, St. Paul says, are sons of God. 
Now, this is important in, in Hebrew thought, and so Paul, having grown up in that, it's significant to be a son, because what do sons receive that daughters do not in Jewish culture? Inheritance. An inheritance. And what, what inheritance do you receive when you are baptized? Eternal life. You receive eternal life. Because Paul says, you put on Christ. God the Father covers you up with Jesus. And so whenever he looks at you, he sees in each one of his baptized Christians a beloved son. He sees a little Christ, one who's covered in the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus, and one who receives what rightly belongs only to Jesus, an inheritance. So there's a sense in which every Christian is made a son in baptism, and so the call to sacrificial masculinity is not just for men, though men and women will live out this Christian calling to sacrificial living in different ways. Conversely, all Christians are knit together into what scripture uses the illustration of the church she is the bride of christ and she's always depicted with with feminine imagery not not every single christian is a bride of christ but all the church together comprises the one bride of christ and so i know you guys had a chat about biblical femininity a while ago and and presumably hopefully part of what your presenter talked about was was the receptive nature of femininity that that part of what being feminine means is being receptive to to the goodness that others give and and this even even our basic biology confesses this right even when in your fifth grade health class when when they made all the girls leave the room and they taught the boys about what the parts of their body are and about human how, how human reproduction happens or when they kept all the girls and they sent the boys out to recess early and talked about the, the parts of a girl's body, you learned that, that a male body and a female body fit together complementarily, like puzzle pieces. They don't, you can't put two of the same together and use them in the way that they were intended to function. So, and in that procreative act, the man's body gives and the woman's body receives. This is so fundamental to our biology that, that it's, it goes all the way back to each person's origin. A man gives, a woman receives. So there's, there's some of the essence of masculinity and the essence of femininity there. But for every, every Christian, there is a call to this kind of sacrifice. Now, if you have, if you still have your Bibles open or your phone hasn't gone to sleep and the app is still open, check out 1 Corinthians 6. And then someone read verses 9 to 11. And I'll promise you in advance that I'm going to pick on your translation. It doesn't matter what translation you read from, I'm going to pick on it. 9 to 11, 1 Corinthians 6. Somebody read that for us. 
I got it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All right. Now here's where I'm going to pick on the translation. There are actually 10 words there, 10 categories of sin that St. Paul says excluded you from inheriting the kingdom of God, and from which, he says, you were saved, you were washed, sanctified, justified. If you see, most modern English translations have a little footnote under the word that gets, or the, the word that gets translated into a phrase, men who practice homosexuality, um, and it says something to the effect of the two Greek words here indicate the two different participants in, in the homosexual act. And maybe they do after St. Paul and, and a considerable time after St. Paul, they get used as a couplet, but not before Paul. So the second word, arsenikoitai, we'll get really nerdy on you for a second, does mean men who have sex with other men. But, but the, the word before that, that doesn't get specifically translated in most English versions, versions is malakoi. And it, it means, some, in, in like the King James Version, for instance, it gets translated something like effeminate men. But that's not, especially the way we understand what it means to be effeminate, that's not exactly what that word means. It comes from virtue literature that well precedes Paul and which he would have been conversant in. And so Aristotle, for instance, writes about those who are soft, who possess this malachia, softness, not in a kind of physical disposition, but in a kind of inward disposition. They're soft because they're selfish. They're soft because they care more about preserving themselves than about giving themselves. So it's a word that would be used of a soldier. You think a big, strong Greek soldier. If he shirked his responsibility to, to fight for the good of his brothers. So the way Greek soldiers fight, you have a great big shield in your left hand and your sword in your right hand. There can be no, no left-handed soldiers because the way they all fit together tightly, your shield protects the guy to your left and also your left side. But your right side is guarded by the man to your right. And so if you were to shirk your responsibility to give of yourself for the good of your country, for the good of your fellow soldiers, you would be accused of being soft. And it would, leave, it would leave the guy to your left exposed to attack. So Aristotle and then some of his philosophers after him will explore this, this idea of softness, that it's, it's a kind of luxurious living, an avoidance of pain, and, and a kind of cowardice that puts self above others. So 
all the other words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 are really big category sins. Adultery, theft, slander. So it doesn't make sense that Paul, for two whole words, descends down into really getting into the weeds about something, some particular situation going on in Corinth. No, Malachia, softness, is, is a big category sin. And it is the antithesis, the opposite of masculinity. If masculinity is about sacrifice and about giving, Malachia, softness, is about protecting oneself. Let's look at Adam. So open your Bible to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Don't worry, we won't read the whole thing, and I won't even make you read the whole thing. So Genesis 1 is really big picture creation account. God, God creates on a, on a huge scale, light and dark in a day, separates water from water, sky in between in a day, water from dry land, fills the dry land with plants in a day, fills the light and the dark with sun, moon, and stars in a day, fills the waters and the skies with the animals that swim and that fly, fills the land with all the land-going animals, and then in the middle of day six, the language changes a little bit. Everything before had been, how does God create light? What does he say? Let there be light. Let there be light. The, the language is pointed outward towards the light. Light be. Let there be an expanse between the heavens. Let dry land appear. But now in the middle of day six, when, when God is creating mankind, the language changes. What does he say before he makes man and woman? In verse 26, if you're uh, following along. Let us. Let us make. So look, the language changes. It's not directed at the object God makes anymore, but now it's a kind of conversation within the Trinity. Let us. And instead of let there be, it is let us make a new word in Genesis 1. So in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So this is all really still big big picture stuff. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Probably, uh, if you were like me, you had a Sunday school teacher who warned you against thinking that the image of God meant that, that man looks like God. Maybe that's only my experience. Because they say, God is spirit, we don't, God doesn't look like anything, right? What does God look like? 
I think I might be wrong, but I think we talked about it my, during my confirmation, like in Ezekiel, there's like a rainbow and basically too bright for it. Perfect. It's just perfect. Okay. All right. So if you were to try to contemplate the glory of God, it is, it is inaccessible, too bright for you to stare at. And so the glory of God passes by Moses and he hides him in a rock. And when, when Isaiah beholds the glory of God, it's just the, the fringe of his garment that fills up the temple while the angels are covering themselves saying, holy, holy, holy. All right. All right. True. But what does God look like? He's revealed himself through Jesus too, though. Ding, ding, ding. And St. Paul writes to the Colossians that he, Christ, is the very image of God. Jesus promises throughout John's gospel, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the very image of God. So when God makes Adam, he does look like God. He looks like the very form that God will take when he becomes flesh. It's not that Jesus decides to look like Adam. It's the other way around. It's that God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus is such a central event in all of history that it casts its shadow all the way back to Genesis 1. Why does Adam have 10 fingers and 10 toes and one nose and two eyeballs and two testicles and two ears and one penis and two kneecaps? Because Jesus possesses all of those things. He bears in his flesh the likeness, the physical likeness of God when God becomes flesh. Now, that's not only what the image of God means, and, and the, the phrase means way more than just Adam looks like God. It also means Adam is righteous and holy. He has perfect faith in God. Luther, Luther even speculates a little bit on this and says, Adam, Adam has perfect strength and perfect vision. His eye, this is in Luther's Genesis commentary, and, and it's, just, it's just fun to think this way. His eye is keener than the eagles. His, his speed is, is swifter than, than the lynx. I think, I forget what animal Luther says there. And his strength is, is greater than the lion, such that Adam plays with the lion like a little child plays with a puppy. Which is true. Before the fall into sin, everything is good. So Adam can walk over to the lion and like grab it by its mane and throw it to the ground. And the lion comes back and sort of, you know, like a puppy is, is mouthy a little bit. He's kind of chewing on Adam's arm, but he doesn't break the skin and he couldn't if he wanted to. And they wrestle around a little bit. Right. Well, that's also the picture we have of the new creation. The, the little child will put its hand in, in the adder's den, in the snake pit, and pull out a snake and tie it in knots and fling it around. There's no, no more death in God's renewed creation. And that's the way it is in the first creation as well. Be fruitful and multiply, he tells them. 
and subdue the earth and have dominion. We'll, we'll uh, just take these at sort of a superficial level. What does be fruitful and multiply mean? Have kids. Oh, you're so pious. Make babies. Procreate, which is as close as mankind gets to God's creative work. God creates out of nothing. Man creates out of almost nothing. Procreates out of almost nothing. So it's not even a whole human cell, right? What, what man contributes is a single haploid cell. What woman contributes is a single haploid cell, neither of which is a human being, neither of which possesses a full human complement of DNA. But when they come together, you have a brand new human being, DNA that has never before existed. And since this is a, a youth for life chat, What's your proof that an embryo is a human being? Sunday school answer. Jesus was an embryo. Or more precisely, the second person of the triune God was once a single-celled human being. Because they didn't give him his name Jesus until nine months and eight days later. But this is, this is what we celebrate in the church here a week from tomorrow, March 25th put it on your calendars, is nine months before Christmas. It's when we celebrate the Annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary, the first dwelling of God in human flesh in his creation happens in, in the womb of this teenage girl. And the church begins Christmas already back in March. It's a, it's a wonderful pro-life day in, in the church's calendar. God was an embryo, and a zygote, and a blastocyst, and a fetus, and a pre-born baby, and an infant, and a toddler, and an adolescent, and an annoying teenager, and, and a young man, and a man. He was all of these things. Well, more on, more on that in a minute. All right, but that's Genesis 1. Big picture stuff. Everything is good. Genesis 2 is, is more into the weeds. Everything is chugging along beautifully. But then in Genesis 2, around verse 18, you've got this startling declaration. God says, it is not good. What? That man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. So what does God do? He causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He takes a piece out of his side. And from that side, he, he creates a bride for the man. And he presents her to himself. And the man wakes from the sleep of death and says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's Holy Week. On the sixth day of the week, the second Adam, in the sleep of death, the soldier pierces his side, and out of the side, God draws the source material for a bride out of the water and blood, 
symbols of the church, the Lord constitutes a bride for the man, wakes him from the sleep of death, and presents her to himself. That's, that's the, the truer thing that casts its shadow, just like the incarnation casts its shadow onto Adam. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus casts its shadow all the way back into the garden. So, not good for man to be alone. Alone, he can't be masculine. If I'm right that masculinity is about sacrifice and giving, then he can't do that by himself. It doesn't matter, you know, how many bicep curls he can do, what his, what his PR in the squat rack is, how great he looks in front of the gym mirror, how big his truck is or his gun collection, or how proficient he is with tools. Those are all only manly characteristics. I said at the very beginning, our definition of masculinity is not just manly characteristics. It's, it's the intersection of those characteristics in service to others, in virtue for the good of others. Even the word virtue has as its root the Latin word for man, V-I-R, vir, or weir, if you're a classicist. Do we get a, a props there from Olivia? Taking some, some uh, classical Latin? Good, yeah. So, virtue has always been uh, or the pursuit of virtue has always been trying to live according to the goodness of one's calling. For a man, being a good man. For a woman, although especially in like Aristotelian virtue writing, um, it's only men who are called to pursue virtue. But for a woman, the pursuit of virtue is living according to the goodness given to her that she's called to be. So Genesis 2, not good for them to be alone, him to be alone. So he makes a helper for the man. And, and they come together in a complementary way. That is, he is not she and she is not he. They're, they're drawn from the same person, but drawn back apart from one another so that when they come together, then they are no longer two but one flesh. And in their union, they have they become one flesh and, and have the capacity to procreate a one flesh offspring of their marital union. And this is all good. And, and Adam is, is called to be sacrificial. He's called to put his wife above his, his wife's needs and her good, above his own needs and his own good. And then Genesis 3 happens. And, and all the wheels come off. And so look how in the fall, everything is turned upside down. It should have been God, man, woman, rest of creation. That's, that's their order, the, their place in the cosmos. But in the fall, everything's turned upside down. The creature, the devil in the, in the guise of a serpent, comes to the woman who gives some to her husband, who was with her 
and he eats, and they all are trying to make themselves like God, all putting themselves over God. So in the fall, you have, you have the, the opposite of masculinity. You've got an Adam who treats his bride. She doesn't get her name Eve until after the fall. But an Adam who treats Eve like a science experiment. And, and what they're testing is the truth of God's word. If she eats and doesn't die, they lose God because God is a liar and he's withholding something good from them. But if she eats and doesn't, wait, if she eats and dies, then he loses his bride, but he's only had her for a short time anyway. And apparently God can make another one out of a rib. So, but it's a, it's a, huge experiment. But see, Adam is fixated on himself. And then when they sin, where do their eyes go? To themselves. And Adam, for the first time, beholds that he is, he's sinful. And in that sin, they see their nakedness and they're ashamed. And then when God confronts Adam about his sin, what's his answer? I sinned, it's my fault, punish me alone. Take all of her sin and put it on me. Punish me in her place, right? That's what Jesus does, but that's the opposite of what Adam does. Instead, he says, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave to me and I ate. What could I do? He's self-preserving. And so from this moment, masculinity has become disordered. Now Paul has to warn against malachia, softness, effeminacy, a selfishness of character, man being curved in on himself. The love of God, amor dei, is replaced, Augustine says, with the love of self, amor sui. That happens in the fall. And you can see it playing out. Adam loves Adam. Adam protects Adam. Adam seeks Adam's good alone. So from Eden, then, creation quickly devolves into what I call the city of the same, where men and women are treated not just as equals, but as interchangeable. Anything he can do, she can do. This probably is, well, it's well before your time, because it's a little before my time, even. A woman needs a man like, do you know the second half? Like a fish needs a bicycle. It's a, it's a nonsensical statement. It comes out of first wave feminism and then gets embraced in second wave feminism. The idea is she doesn't need him. He doesn't need her. And she certainly doesn't need him. Then third wave feminism, the saying was changed to boys are dumb, throw rocks at them. Now it's a kind of antipathy. I, seriously, you can, you can still buy those t-shirts. So not just men are unnecessary, but, but rather men are evil. This is the same kind of sentiment that treats masculinity as toxic. But men are complicit in this too, right? Adam's really 
content to let, let Eve be a feminist, which is what he does in the fall. He lets her be the theologian. He lets her be the pastor. He lets her be the evaluator of the veracity of the word of God. Which came first, the chicken or the feminist? Adam's cowardice or Eve's abdication or, or Eve's usurping of Adam's authority? Adam's abdication of his authority or Eve's usurping Adam's authority. He's the coward. She's the feminist. And that, that sets the pattern for all of society ever since. And, and we live in this egalitarian world that's really not new in the history of the world. It's just kind of we're on a wave where egalitarianism is kind of at its peak right now. In the city of the same, it's very much a kind of genderless utopia. Tolerance is the highest value. And, and we will be completely intolerant of any intolerance. Boys in schools are expected to behave like girls, and their boys are medicated with, with drugs like Ritalin at, at nearly four times the rate that girls are, probably because what we're medicating is just a kind of boyish rambunctiousness where boys just aren't programmed to sit in a desk for, for eight hours a day, or, or they're not content to learn math problems without making them into a contest where the loser gets punched in the arm. They're just different from one another and they learn in very different ways. But in the city of the same, work outside the home becomes the highest ideal. And, and the imaginary numbers or the numbers representing imaginary money that you never actually touch on that slip of paper you bring home every two weeks determines your value as a human being. But it's not just, it doesn't just denigrate women to have to go out and provide for their family to step into Adam's shoes. It also denigrates Adam's humanity for him to have to go to a factory and make widgets instead of cultivating a kind of economy of the household. In Greek, the words are the same. Maintaining a household is maintaining an economy. Moreover, in the city of the same, lust reduces all people to mere objects. Women are no longer women, they're collections of body parts. Men are no longer men, they're collections of body parts. We live in a, in a pornographied society that's, that's saturated with sex, and it only works because, because we've lost the essence of what real masculinity is. A sacrificial biblical kind of masculinity would never, would never look at another person as an object or a collection of parts. I would never view another person as someone to be consumed, taken. Would never look at pixels on a screen depicting a, a real human being and, and believe that to be another person. There are no good men in this pornotopic society that we inhabit. So this, this, this is our, our problem, our predicament. And we've been sort of teasing at the answer that you knew was coming all along. In John 1, God's solution to the disorder of our flesh, John 1 verse 14, after John's been talking about in the beginning was the word and the word 
was with God and the word was God and all things were made through him and not anything was made apart from him. Then he gets to verse 14 and the word became flesh. And when Pontius Pilate later, John sort of bookends his gospel with this fleshiness, with God being man. When Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowd, 19, John 19, 5, I think, he, he stands him before the crowd and he says, behold the man. Pilate intends to say, look, this is merely a man and not a king, certainly not a god. But John, the preacher, the evangelist, has a way of, of putting into Pilate's mouth this beautiful sermon. Look at the man. For, for all of us men who grapple with the disorder of our flesh, who contend against this selfishness that's, that's not, not a part of our flesh, but, but a corruption of our flesh, that disorders our desires, that makes all of us fail in the task of being sacrificially manly, in the task of being genuinely biblically masculine, the solution, God does it instead. He becomes man. And he embodies perfect masculinity when he gives of himself completely on the cross. He's not, he's not weak on the cross. Jesus says in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He's completely in control. And with his strength and control, all the powers of, of the Godhead at his disposal he dies intentionally, purposely. It is according to his will in order to give himself for the good of his bride, for the good of his church, for the good of men who struggle to be masculine and women who struggle to be feminine. And then, with sins forgiven, men can find in Jesus an example of what a good man is and does, but only with sins forgiven. Only once Jesus has been your savior can he be your example. Then what, what can we learn from Jesus? A man is good, a man is strong. Jesus is never nice, not as we understand nice to be a kind of milk toast, refusing to offend people. He's kind, he's good, but he's not nice the way mothers want, want their children just be nice, which means don't, don't hurt one another too loudly that it interrupts whatever I'm trying to do on my cell phone. That one pricks closest to home because that's me. Be nice. Don't interrupt me. And what, is, what does Jesus do? He gives, he loves, he prays, and he fights. This is, this is the essence of what a man is given to do. So here we are talking to, well, I guess, I guess we're about half and half. If Dave's son were still in the picture, we'd have, I guess we'd have half men and half, half women listening. So what I say when I, when I 
talk to groups of men. The way, the way Paul talks in Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, is never like a weapon that a man gets to wield against his wife. Paul's not talking to men there. So let the wives deal with Ephesians 5, 22, 23, 24. And then he turns his attention to, to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And he doesn't address that to wives to wield as, as a club against their husbands. Like, why don't you love me like Christ loves the church, darn it? Each is only interested in, in his own virtue. So I want to I wanna ha- have a big disclaimer. When looking for a good man, don't look first to his virtue. Look, look to his dependence upon the one who alone is good. So, so find a man who goes to church because he knows that he needs forgiveness. And from that, he'll, he'll grow into being a good man. So don't ever say to your boyfriend someday, well, Pastor Hemmer said, this is what good men are supposed to do, and you don't do that very well. In the same way that Paul doesn't mean Ephesians 5 to be the weapon that husbands get to wield against their wives. Submit to me, darn it. It's in the Bible. Each is is only interested in his own need and his own good. But so then, if you are a man, what what practical things to do? I said a man's to-do list is these four things. Pray, love, give, fight. The Christian life is not for sissies. However, we, we, we came to think of Christianity especially, but religion more broadly and Christianity especially, as a thing for women and children, has done no one any good. Just think of, think of the, the New Testament illustrations for what it means to live the Christian life. St. Paul closes his letter to the, to the Corinthians, his first one, saying, be strong and act like men. Well, every Christian is called to be a son of God, and there's a call to sacrifice that, that everyone is called into. When, when Christians told the stories of the martyrs, martyrdom, that is giving one's life in in confession of the truth of the gospel, was thought to be the manliest way to die. And so even when, like, St. Lucy gets her eyeballs gorged out and killed, she is, she's venerated for having died in this courageous gospel-confessing way. She dies in a, in a manly, courageous way, the church speaks of her. But she's a little, a little virgin girl. But she does so boldly, courageously, right? All Christians are called to possess that same kind of courage. And so a man should, should pray like a man. Pray with the vigor of, of the church's prayer book. Pray the litany. Man, if you're not praying the litany every day in Lent, it's, it's the manliest prayer that there is. And it's, 
my favorite line from the whole prayer is that that God would beat down Satan under our feet. Right? I mean, he does the beating down, but our feet still get a role in it. Pray like a man. Sing like a man. It's sort of a subset of praying like a man. They used to say that that fathers who bring their families to church have children who grow up in the church. It's actually more nuanced than that. Um, Now they say fathers who sing in church have, have children who grow up in church, because that means he's participating. He's not just a spectator to the faith. He's not just a witness to the liturgy, but he's a participant in it. He's singing. He's singing because he's confessing in song what he believes. So sing like a man. Love like a man, which is sacrificial. It's selfless. Love is patient and strong. Paul's exhortations in in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, it does not envy or boast. It does not seek its own good. The only one who embodies that love perfectly is Jesus, but in Jesus, so does every man. Give like a man. Think of Paul in Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Look where the motivation for, for good works comes from, from Christ who dwells in man, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's, no, there's absolutely no argument that masculinity is toxic if we reclaim the biblical picture of masculinity as giving, as sacrificial. Anyone who then is a recipient of that kind of biblical masculinity is always better for it. It's like when when God gives Adam dominion in the garden, he doesn't want him to to abuse creation, but Adam Adam brings about the flourishing of creation. Everywhere he goes, whatever he touches, whatever he invests himself in, flourishes. So it is with, with masculinity. It's not a bad word, but whatever a man does sacrificially, creation flourishes for it. And finally, a man is called to fight like a man. There's really two two targets in his fight. The first is himself. This is why Luther's morning prayer begins, I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil. A man knows the, the perversion of his own flesh. He knows the inclination of his own heart. He knows the paths that his feet will trod left to their own devices. And then at the end of the day, I thank you, my heavenly father, that you have kept me this day from all danger. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I've done wrong against himself, right? I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess all unto thee, all my sins and iniquities. The first, the first one that a man puts in his sights is himself. He is the target his sinful flesh that wants nothing good for him. And then he fights for the good of others. He fights for the good of those around him, his family, until he's given his own family. Then he fights for the good of his bride, 
He fights for the good of his children. He fights for the good of his congregation, his church. He fights for the good of his neighborhood. He fights for the good of his, of his nation. He's invested in, in using himself as, as an instrument for the most good of all the others around him. Let's leave it there. So if you have questions, let's, let's, first of all, thank you, Pastor Hammer, very much for being here and for giving us such a great, a great body of reality, right? Biblical reality to think about and to contemplate, especially, you know, only as some of us are looking for spouses, right? But some of us are raising sons. So that's wonderful. So what do you guys think? You have questions, anything that that Pastor Hemmer said that you're, you think, wow, that's, I didn't, I didn't think about it that way before. So we talked a lot about actions as a part of biblical manhood. Mm-hmm. What about outward appearance? Does that have anything to do with biblical manhood? So let's say no and yes. A man, so by appearance, you mean like physical characteristics, like strength. Yeah. So I would include that in the category of manly characteristics. So men, men will be stronger than women as long as their bodies produce, they produce 10 times the testosterone that a woman's body produces. It's just biological reality. So the exception proves the rule right? When, when a woman makes it through green beret training or something without relaxing the standards, something that, that hundreds, thousands of men before her have done, it simply proves the fact that, that for men, it's, it's a much less difficult thing. They possess that kind of strength more naturally than she does. But then what does a man do with that strength? That's the question. So I, I do think I do think it's important for a man to to cultivate strength, not just physical strength, but also strength of mind, strength of spirit, like spiritual strength. I think there's there's a variety of kinds of strength that he cultivates for the good of others, right? So I I work out almost every day. And I, I often fall into the trap of thinking that I'm, I'm doing this for some vain pursuit, right? Like to look good or to burn calories or lose weight or, or something like that, right? But that's all just superficial. The goal is that I, I can be a better husband and father. I can be a better neighbor. I can be a better son to my parents, right? Carry their heavy things for them, whatever. The strength is just a means to an end. It's not the end. And the same, the same is true of, right? Mental strength or book smarts or any of that. I mean, a man should, he should cultivate all of those things. He should be well-rounded, well-read, but those are not the goal in themselves. The goal is that he knows how to use those characteristics in service to others. So the strongest man in the world, if he's selfish, 
is not masculine. All right, did that, that get to the heart of your question or were you looking more for taking care of himself or those sorts of things? Yeah, that was pretty much where I was heading. Those other things are also a good question though, you know, outward appearance, like, I don't know, facial hair and, you know, head hair, I don't know, you know, and like other clothing and appearance wise, that could also be an interesting topic. Yeah. So I didn't show you my slides. The last one of, of which has this quote from Augustine where he says, the beard signifies the courageous. The beard distinguishes the grown men, the earnest, the active, the vigorous. So that when we, when we describe such, we say he is a bearded man. Now, now beards are kind of hipster or creepy or homeless looking or whatever. But the fact is only a man can grow a beard. So it, it should be a sign of, of his godly character within. Now, that, so that's just a, a sign, and Augustine uses it, right? You could say of someone with a bald face who, who exercises virtue, those kinds of virtues that Augustine praises, that he's, he's well-bearded, even if he's cleanly shaven like Dave. If he's exercising virtue, oh, look, not cleanly shaven. Right. So, but it's, it's the same, it's the same way, right? So, and those things don't matter. You could be, you could be manly with a bald face, a bald head, narrow shoulders. None of that really makes one manly. It's, it's the, like the internal fortitude, the self-sacrificial disposition towards the world that makes one manly. I thought Great you were question. gonna say I thought you were gonna say man created the razor, but God created the beard. <laughs> huh. <laughs> there you go. I'll add that one to my repertoire. I did have another another thought while you were talking, Pastor. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about of uh, God making Adam making Adam in his image. Yeah. In the genealogy in Genesis 5, it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. But then it says, Adam lived and he fathered his son in his own likeness after his yeah. image. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now the image is passed on that way. And so this will be also a place where, where we can derive that, that part of the image of God is lost in the fall. Now, now Adam's sons are made in Adam's likeness and not not exclusively in the likeness of God. And is that that image restored at any time? Yeah, so it's restored in Christ. He he possesses the image and all who are in Christ possess that <clears throat> possess that image anew. So when God the Father looks at all of his children, he sees his his spitten image. He sees his perfect likeness. He sees, he sees Christ in all of us and treats us as such. He calls us holy, and, and we spend all of our life on earth trying to believe that he's right. He says, you're holy, and you're forgiven, and all of your sins are answered for by Jesus, and I don't see any of that when I look at you. And so I, I had a professor say once that sanctification, being made holy, 
is just learning to believe our justification, to believe that we really are what God says we are. All right, any other questions that you guys have? Uh, would you talk a little bit about male friendship and just how- Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it seems like one of those things that should be common sense, but it's not. <laughs> no, it. you're exactly right. And so when when God says it's not good for man to be alone, he doesn't just fix the problem by creating a bride for him, a helper. From her then, Adam receives not just a bride, but he receives uh, a family. And, and from them, he receives not just not just a family, but a community. And, and eventually, he receives friends as well. C.S. Lewis distinguishes between four different types of love and philia. So they're all, there are four different Greek words for love. Agape, the, the pure and perfect love God has for man. Storge is familial love, like parents have for their children. Eros is marital love between a man and a woman. And philia is the kind of love that men are called to have for one another. We, it's, it's common knowledge now that men are in, in kind of a, a plague of loneliness. And you can, you can find a lot of different causes for what has brought that about. And you can find a lot of a lot of ill effects in society as a result of man of male loneliness. But I think I think part of the problem is that men have forgotten how to be friends with one another. And see, our our culture has just reduced all love to eros. We think if two people love each other, they should have sex with one another, whether they're of the same sex, whether they're married, whether they're an adult and a child, we just flatten everything down to love equals sex. And so men who, who don't want to have sex with other men have, have a difficult time thinking of loving another man. But they do, or they should, they need to. But philia is different from eros in the way that it's formed. Eros, Lewis writes, is formed face-to-face. -face. Think, of, think of the procreative position of a man and a woman. They, they face one another. But men love one another shoulder-to-shoulder, side-by-side. And their love is forged when, when they're working towards a common goal, shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, facing the same enemy, or marching towards the same objective or dealing with the same boss or something like that, right? That's, that's how men form a love for one another. And, and it doesn't mean, right, when David loved Jonathan, it doesn't mean that he wanted to have sex with him. It means that he possessed this, this close brotherly philia between them that we in our hyper-eroticized culture uh, can no longer wrap our heads around. But men should, can and should love one another, and they should do things to, to cultivate that friendship and to cultivate that love. They should do things together 
with, with a common goal in mind? Thank you, Nicole, for that question. So tonight we talked about what biblical manhood is, and of course, biblical manhood upholds life, right, in its very essence and service to others. And so and we want to thank Pastor Hammer for being here to share that truth with us. Thanks for joining us for today's life topic. Check out whyforlife.org or email Michelle at whyforlife.org to find out how and when you can go live with us at our next Chats for Life session. Or join us next time right here at Why for Life Podcasts, where youth learn how to be gospel-motivated voices for life.